entry level job. Fuck up. Focus on the good times. Don't be sarcastic. Isn't that what you said one time? Try and remember the times that were good? I did? Yeah. Well, it's true, I guess. And then we came to the end. I'm Erin Hozier. And I am Elizabeth Thompson. And this is Tell Me About Your Father's Sopranos series. On today's episode, we're only going to be talking about the final episode of the series called Made in America. You heard a little bit of it just now, AJ reminding Tony that he once told him to focus on the good times, which was our pull quote from our very first episode of this series, the line you hear Tony express in the first part of our show. It's been a journey, busy, no pun intended. <laughs> We've been working on this series really probably since last June or something, a long time, six months. We really feel like we've solved The Sopranos now, and you won't be sorry you stayed to the end. You'll be hearing the most yet from Alan Seppenwall and Matt Zoller-Seitz, the authors of The Sopranos Sessions and the resident experts on all things David Chase and James Gandolfini, and they are going to be talking about both. It's a very moving episode, we think, mm -hmm. and you're just not going to want to miss it. And you should have a little tissue with you to dab your eyes because it's emotional. You know, a lot of people... They just focus on the final, final scene of Made in America, the ending. But there's actually a lot of interesting things that happen <laughs> throughout this episode. And it wouldn't be our show if we didn't start off with an incredibly sad scene um, between Junior and Tony. We'll go right into the ballad of Tony and Uncle June. Uncle June, who's really not well, he's like totally far gone into his Alzheimer's even more than he was when he shot Tony. And he's been downgraded to like a county or a state hospital, a state I hospital, think, like nursing home. It's really run down. Tony refuses to help support him. However, Uncle June does have money and... At this point, Bobby's, you know, Bobby Bacala has two teenage children who have tragically lost their mother, Karen, in a car accident. So now they're alone with Janice, which like the tragedy of that. They've lost both of their parents. So Tony goes to this nursing home to tell June to give his money to Bobby. But it's sort of fruitless because June is very confused the entire time that they're talking. But I thought we would play a little bit because this is the last scene between James Gandolfini and Dominic Chianese, who plays Uncle June. Hello. Well, you don't recognize me? We used to play catch. You don't remember that you shot me? I'm Anthony, Johnny's son. Fuck you want, a boutonniere? All right, listen to me. Uncle Pat came to see me about Janice, about your money. People keep asking me. I don't know. There's a man from another galaxy that came here. That's your accountant. I'm confused. 
Any money should go to Bobby Bacala's kids. Now, Janice may not do that, but Bobby was with us. He's a made guy. Wouldn't be right. Me? I never had kids. You remember where your stash is? You let Uncle Pat know. And he is the head of the family. I'll hold on to it as a guardian for Bobby's kids. You remember, Bobby? Sure. You don't know who I am, do you? You remember Johnny? Johnny boy? Your kid brother? This thing of ours. I was involved with that? You and my dad. You two ran North Jersey. We did? Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's nice. It's so sad. Well, that's nice. He's very confused, and he keeps looking at the window at birds, and Tony's getting more and more frustrated with him. And when he's walking away from Uncle June after Uncle June says, well, that's nice to him, looks mm -hmm. so stricken. He's just totally heartbroken. You know, Tony's lineage is slipping away before him. His living connection to his own father doesn't remember his own brother. Doesn't mention the mob. Does mention we used to play catch and that he never had children of his own. You know, it's a fascinating statement. Yeah. From David Chase about what this guy who, you know, in Tony's mind, tried to kill him on purpose. I don't think he really believes that he doesn't until this scene, which somehow makes it even more unfinished. There's no closure. There's no catharsis in this conversation. It's pathetic. It's like a what's it all for kind of moment. Like, what was the point of this poor man's life? Yeah, I think what you said, though, that there was possibly some significance for June to be a father figure to Tony. And it's a very limited dynamic. Playing catch with the kid isn't meeting all of their needs necessarily, but it was significant to Uncle June. And I think that we see that here. We should mention that tensions have been mounting, obviously, all along, but tensions are mounting around, you know, certain members of the mob flipping and talking to the FBI. And earlier in the episode, Tony meets with his FBI agent friend. Basically, they're like friendly rivals. And that guy can't help him out with any information. There have been attempts on his life at this point where he knows that he can't really trust anyone. I don't think he saw the death of Bobby. You know, Tony didn't see the death of Bobby, but we should say that after Bobby is killed, that Tony goes with his guys and lives in the safe house. Mm -hmm. All of the Sopranos leave the house. They go to. It's a safe house just upstate or somewhere, you know, in the country. Tony's in a different safe house. But at this point, Phil Leotardo is on the run. And Tony gets kind of his second in command, who's a guy named Butchie, to stand down. They have a meeting. And so in a way, who knows if it's bullshit, but New York kind of agrees to back off. And then Phil Leotardo is killed in a gas station and in an incredibly violent but darkly funny scene. And so for now, dot, 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 there's a truce with New York. Um, who knows how long it's going to last? Who knows if all of... The New York captains have gotten the message to stand down from trying to kill Tony. The other thing that we should say is um, 
before Tony goes to see June that AJ announces to his family that he's going to join the army. And they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. Which is, you know, ironic after they tried to send him to military school. Right. Um, he says that he's going to learn how to fly helicopters and that maybe someday, I don't know, I could work for Donald Trump. It's literally a line uttered in the last episode of Sopranos. They talk him out of it and they get him a job in production working for Little Carmine, <laughs> who told Tony about his Lilipulous box. He gets a job working for Little Carmine's production company. And after accidentally setting his SUV on fire that Tony got for him in a recent episode, they have replaced that burnt SUV with a BMW. And you see AJ coming out of Little Carmine's production studio with a script under his arm, hopping in his BMW. And, you know, it seems like he's maybe feeling better and back to being a spoiled rich kid. And right. uh, not that he ever wasn't. And after Tony goes to see June, they make dinner plans to go mm -hmm. to the diner Holston's. Right. Which we should mention has a prominent place in the many saints of Newark, like a call out, I think. But it's just a diner. It's obviously somewhere the family have been going to for, for years. It's a casual affair like Tony gets there first to the diner and he sits down and there's jukeboxes in the individual booths and we see him flipping through the options and he settles on the journey song Don't Stop Believin' which came out in 1981 so kind of at Carmela and and Tony's prime if you will of like pop music so we're treated to as much of the song uh, Don't Stop Believing as possible, I just wanted to read a few of the lyrics that I think are really pertinent. Working hard to get my fill, everybody wants a thrill, paying anything to roll the dice just one more time. Some will win, some will lose, some were born to sing the blues. Oh, the movie never ends. It goes on and on and on and on. And each family member like comes in. We see Carmela first. She sits down with Tony and kind of he tells her that so-and-so is going to talk. So she kind of like takes this in and just kind of nods. And Meadow is running late because she's switching birth control. You know, she tells him. We're watching all of these people come in from the point of view of Tony Soprano. He's facing the door while sitting in the booth. So he's kind of like looking around. He sees the members only guys sit at the counter. A bell rings every time the door opens. Mm -hmm. And one of those like, you know, ding, ding, ding on the door in these old restaurants. And AJ sits down. They're looking at the menu. We see a long scene of Meadow, who has been running late, like trying to parallel park her car outside. And then basically like Tony looks up as she, as we see her running in and suddenly like the last lyrics we hear of Journey is the words, don't stop. And then we see Tony's face looking at the door as a bell rings. And then the TV goes black for a full 10 seconds of silence. 
And when I saw it live in 2007 at my Sopranos viewing party, it really was like that thing, like where you hit the side of your TV, like, oh my God, this can't possibly be the end. You know, maybe everybody's tuning in at the same time. And it's just one of those things where the cable goes out. What is happening? And then the credits just come with silence on the screen and you you know, I've watched them a million times now, but there's all of these little Easter eggs, like man in members only jacket. So there's obviously been tons and tons of debate. And Busy, do you want to read like at press time, you know, just yesterday before we recorded this, David Chase did an interview in The Hollywood Reporter. He confirms that Tony does die in the final episode of the series, which has been quite a discussion since then. Yeah, some would say, Matt Zoller cites our guest, and we'll hear from Matt and Alan after this, would say there is certainly evidence to support that Tony was killed. What was the members only guy, the guy who keeps turning in his chair wearing a members only jacket at the counter to look at Tony, who then goes to the bathroom. Oh, that guy clearly came out of the bathroom and popped Tony from behind and that's what happens with it going black but there's you know another argument of like maybe he just went to the bathroom maybe he just recognized tony soprano as a local wise guy and was impressed to be hanging out at holston's with them we don't know and so i think matt zoller cites after this hollywood reporter piece came out he's been tweeting today about his frustration over the fact that people will not accept that the scene is ambiguous and it is. I think there are a lot of people out there, including you, Aaron, who are like, undoubtedly Tony was killed in that moment. Because we're seeing life from Tony's point of view and suddenly things go black. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been mention of like, suddenly you get clipped and all you see is black. You don't even see it when it comes. You know, the wise guys talk about that, like what getting clipped actually feels like. So just from a cinematic standpoint, like I would flip it around on on Matt and say, like, why do you need him to be alive? And we talk about that. We do. So the Hollywood Reporter interview is, is interviewing David Chase. The 2018 book, The Soprano Sessions, this is the reporter is asking David Chase this was written by guys who wrote at the same time of the show for the New Jersey Star-Ledger, Matt Zoller cites and Alan Seppenwall. They ask you about the June 10th, 2007 series finale with, of course, Don't Stop Believin' and the famous Cut to Black. You said, quote, well, I had that death scene in mind for years before. A, do you remember specifically when the ending first came to you? And B, Was that a slip of the tongue? Because David Chase has always been evasive as to what actually happened in that scene, by the way. David Chase responds to that very direct question with, right, period, was it? (laughs) David (laughs) Chase, he's always been very quiet. I'm asking you, no, no question mark. He's referring to the question of, do you remember specifically when the ending first came to you? He ignores, was that a slip of the tongue when you accidentally confirmed to them that it was a death scene? He ignores that part and he answers, no, I I don't remember when the scene came to me. 
He says, because the scene I had in mind was not that scene, nor did I think of cutting to black. I had a scene in which Tony comes back from a meeting in New York in his car. At the beginning of every show, he came from New York into New Jersey. And the last scene could be him coming from New Jersey back into New York for a meeting in which he was going to be killed. And the interviewer says, and when did the alternative ending first occur to you? I've spoken with showrunners who said, quote, I knew at the beginning exactly how my show was going to end or by season three or whatever. It sounds like when you were writing, you liked to stay six scripts ahead of where you were in the action. He says, yeah, but I think I had this notion. I was driving on Ocean Park Boulevard near the airport and I saw a little restaurant and it was kind of like a shack that served breakfast. And for some reason, I thought Tony should get it in a place like that. Why? I don't know. That was like two years before. So there you go. Tony should get it. (laughs) Tony should get it. So then going down, he kind of starts to echo a little bit of what Matt's saying. What did you make of the reaction to the finale? The whole episode was great, but people sort of fixated on, yeah, nobody said anything about the episode. It was all about the ending. And was that annoying? I had no idea it would have caused that much he trails off. I mean, I forget what was going on in Iraq or someplace. London had been bombed. Nobody was talking about that. They were talking about the Sopranos and it was kind of incredible to me. I had no idea that it would be that much of an uproar. And was it annoying? What was annoying was how many people wanted to see Tony killed. That bothered me. The interviewer says they wanted to see it and they wanted confirmation. And David Chase says they wanted to know in italics that Tony was killed. They wanted to see him go face down in Linguini, you know? And I just thought, God, you watched this guy for seven years and I know he's a criminal, but don't tell me you don't love him in some way. Don't tell me you're not on his side in some way. And now you want to see him killed? You want justice done? You're a criminal after watching this shit for seven years. So that bothered me. Yeah. It's that push and that pull from David Chase. Like, it's an interesting quote, I think, from him because there's so much that he's said on the record that he said to Matt and Alan that we've talked about in these recaps of these episodes about intentionally showing the ugly sides of Tony. But he needed to make him lovable in some sense. He couldn't just be a complete asshole or, or people would have stopped watching. Yeah. And yet it is curious about why this guy that we all have a soft spot for who was horrible. Why do we want to see him face down in his linguini? And I I think it has more to do with what Matt talks about, which is people needing the finality of that versus like retribution necessarily for Tony, but just like a clear answer. Yes. I think the idea is that Tony was vulnerable because he wasn't looking around necessarily for who might have been trying to kill him, but he was waiting for his kids to walk through the door. Right. Tony was his at his most vulnerable because he was with his family, his real, That's his right. biological family. And in Tony's mind, you know, all, all was well with New York. But we don't know. I mean... I just wanted to say about the Don't Stop Believin', which has always kind of haunted me, like out of all the songs, mm-hmm. you know, why Journeys Don't Stop Believing. 
And um, I thought to myself, what does it mean to feature this journey song called Don't Stop Believing in an episode called Made in America? The American dream is over if it ever existed to begin with, as AJ kind of alludes to in the last episode. And what The Sopranos has taught us is that the dream was a lie to begin with. Yep. And it keeps teaching us that. And the lie keeps going on and on and on and on. Each generation. With each generation. That could also be used as a metaphor for family dysfunction. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that's what Chase meant. I really do. Or he would at least be proud of us for taking this look specifically through the lens of fatherhood um, to look at these characters. He said how touched he is that people care so much to analyze it as much as we do. It's shocking to me that David Chase, I mean, I don't know if he's just being self-effacing, but that he really, Matt and Alan said that he really seems genuinely surprised that people still care about The Sopranos, yeah. um, which, come on, come on, are you kidding? Here's more of our conversation with Matt and Alan. Let's talk about the ending a little bit. I love how you, Alan, just, you're like, so he's dead. He's dead in the end. <laughs> So Tony gets killed and then Matt, you're just like, wait, 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 what? And that kind of mirrors yeah. like how I, how I responded the first time I saw it. I was like, yeah, Alan Seppenwall knows what's up. Like clearly, you know, those seconds that fade to black and the bells and the uh, Jerry at the dinner with Silvio, like all the foreshadowing, right? And of course, I started reading your columns, Matt, and your side. And, and it's like, yes, that's genius. Of course, he'll always be looking over his shoulder. None of us knows. All of us dies. And this time when I was watching, I realized that I've always been focused on, you know, it's Tony's point of view. It's Tony going to black and going back and forth like, why? why is Meadow parking the car so many times? Like, why is she taking so long to parallel park? What does that mean? Why do we need him to be dead? And then it just struck me like, as a daughter whose dad died suddenly, now mm. 20 years ago, mm. I see that scene now as if you believe, as I do, that he does get shot in the back of the head by the you know mm. members only guy coming out of the bathroom then Meadow's face is the last he ever sees. Mm. And the last image of her dad that Meadow yeah. sees is him being murdered in front of her. Mm. Yep. Therefore, she cannot deny who he was. And the whole parallel parking thing is like, for her, she will always wonder, like, if I had just gotten in, if I was oh. just on time. Mm. You know how when somebody dies suddenly, you're just like, if I had just been there, it wouldn't have happened then. I could have prevented it. Because I do believe that whole thing about, I'm not going to be a doctor anymore because it's too scary to see people like you in pain. I want to defend my Italian heritage and defend <laughs> my dad by becoming a lawyer. And simultaneously knowing that Tony's like, fuck, she's going to find out everything if she becomes a lawyer. Yeah, right. You know, I just, I saw it from her point of view and I sort of flipped it 
just for the first time. And I want to thank you both for that because the conversations that you have with David Chase are so revealing in what he himself does not seem to know about why he made that choice. Like he himself is unconscious in many of his choices. Yeah, I think he, you know, to me, probably the exchange that I think about more than any other from that book is when Alan and I were talking to him about uh, Ralph and that um, Ralphie, you know, we were going back on rewatch and realizing that Ralphie gets killed by Tony and they cut off his head. (laughs) And there's these references leading up to that as early as season three to keeping your head, don't lose your head. I thought like, oh, they planted that because they always plan to have this like horribly gastric sight gag, yeah. you know, with this, you know, his head in the bag and all that. And David said, no, uh, he said, no, that we did not plan. We did not plan that. But then he, but then he said, as he always does, he's like, you know, and this is a guy who's been in therapy since the seventies and he actually must've listened to his therapist because he said, Basically, his point of view is just because we didn't consciously do it doesn't mean we didn't mean to Because do there's it. so many of these right? patterns like that, like eggs, like, as Matt is fond of pointing out, the presence of the number seven on the show. <laughs> yep, and none of those things, David, David kept insisting to us, were things that were intentionally there, but they're very palpably there. And when we started listening to them, he kept sort of being surprised. It was really wonderful. I was adamant that the book be organized according to the number seven. This is what I've had to put up with <laughs> for and years. It has, and if you look at it, you'll see it has seven sections. And within those sections, some of them have seven subsections. Amazing. And whenever there's a list, I try to make it seven items. That's, that's a Matt Zeller site special right there. It's my OCD. <laughs> I'm interested that in anything that storytellers use uh, to construct stories and you know, the tarot deck is big one, you know, Freud is big, Shakespeare is big, the Bible, you know, you name it, like all of the, basically any sort of ancient mythology or system of, of like pictorial images that are used to interpret things. Matt, the conversation you have about the ending is, is great. And I love that you say, why do we need Tony to be dead? I think that's a great question. Why do we need that? Like, can we live in a world where Tony exists somewhere and Caldwell, if he's made it to, what would, would <laughs> right. he now be 65 or something or yeah. 60? Why do we need him to be dead? Because we're Americans. Right. And we hate art in this culture. We hate, mm. we, hate we, we need everything to be explained to us. And I think things have only gotten worse. I think fan culture has been sort of pandered to and made even more simplistic by corporations because they realized that it was a profit center. And so many things are are arranged in terms of like mythology, and I put it in air quotes, and is this canonical or not, and all this kind of stuff. And like, well, the show raised the following questions. They better answer them before the show is over. It's like, why? Why do they need to? Yeah. All throughout human history, people have died without getting the answers to things. And we're all of us are going to die without the answers to a lot of things we wanted the answers to, including the question of what happens when you die. We may not the answer to that when we die so like i think one of the important roles of life is to is to sort of normalize the idea that you can't always get what you want to quote the rolling stones and you've got to live in the uncertainty and i love the sopranos and i love all of the things the sopranos came out of that tradition of like 60s and 70s european art cinema and the american new wave like things Mm -hmm. like 
blow up and blow out yeah. and the conversation and, you know, taxi driver and apocalypse now and the graduate and, uh, you know, you name it, like, and back further than that, things like Hiroshima, Mon Amour, last year at Marinbad and all of these things were like, the whole point of it was you go to see it and then on the way out, you talk about it. What right. happened? The first question a lot of people would ask coming out of those movies was what the hell happened? <laughs> and you sit down and you talk about it and you kind of try to construct a plausible theory as to what happened, but you know that you're probably never going to get the answers that you want. And I like that because it's humbling. And I think we need to be humbled. <laughs> we need to be humbled. And I got to mm -hmm. say in my defense, by the way, that final conversation that we have about the finale, part of that is a bit uh, because like, for a very long time, I was very much the other side of things. Oh, Tony's obviously alive. All these people are saying he's dead. They're reading too much into it. And we realized as we were working on the book that the best way to explore the subject was for one of us to take up this extreme sure. standpoint. You'll notice by the end of the conversation, I've come all the way around and it's, oh, obviously he's alive. And anyone who says otherwise is an idiot. Well, that's a beautiful bit. That's a, and in fact, you know, the, the book cutting to black was my idea, yes. but the structure of that conversation was Alan's. Mm. I got a valid credit for that. And I love it because Alan was the one who was, of oh, the whole business of Schrodinger's cat, who was Alan. And, and like oh. the, that particular conversation is supposed to be an homage to that. Like it's, he's dead yeah. at the beginning and he's alive at the end. And he's, yep. both things are true. And the phrase, both things are true, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Two things can be true. And, you know, the whole thing is like, is Tony a, a heartless sociopathic murderer who can't feel authentic emotions? Or is he uh, a big ball of feelings who, you know, can cry when he hears a song on the radio? And the answer is both things are true. Right. Why is this so hard to understand? Like, why does, why does everything have to be one way, you know? Yeah. I, I you know, I do think it's going to stand the test of time, like to the extent that anything could. Yeah. And in the end, I think it's going to be because of the, the ambiguities and contradictions. There's a reason why, I mean, as much as I love it, Breaking Bad uh, didn't make as powerful an impression as The Sopranos. And I think the reason is Breaking Bad gave you the answers. That's so true. To look at the difference in approaches, like there's two shows, major HBO shows by people who, who were producers on The Sopranos. One is Boardwalk Empire, the other is Mad. Right. And look at the ending in Sopranos, and then you look at the ending of Mad Men, and the genius of Mad Men is it's like an advertising person's version of an amb ambiguous ending <laughs> right. like it's an ambiguous ending it is but it isn't you can kind of do double duty you can kind of come away from it feeling like all of your questions were answered you can also feel like none of your questions were answered and it's an ambiguous ending it's a don draper ending really yeah and david chase actually like he loved that ending and he told Weiner at the end of it he said he pictured don draper like watching this finale on tv and then throwing a bottle of beer at the television it's you know <laughs> although i think don draper would love it because he loved antonioni but but then terrence winter and boardwalk empire that's a gangster show and at the end of that the gangster gets shot he gets shot in the face so you know he's dead and then yeah. a nice long look at the face of the person who shot him and i think there's even like a bit of adr there so just so there's no mistake and yeah. wasn't Terrence Winter, like, adamant that, like, you can't do this, David? I can't remember. No, Terrence Winter wanted to bring the Russian back. That was the whole thing. Like, he had this whole plan. They would do a scene in the final season where Tony just goes to visit, like, Valeri's boss for something. Or Christopher does. And then you see Valeri there working a broom. And Christopher's terrified. And then the camera pivots around. And you see, like, half of his face is missing. And he's obviously <laughs> brain damaged and does not remember any of what happened in the woods. 
And David Chase decided, no, I don't want to do that. You know, screw those people who want closure on the Russian. You know, uh, the year that that happened, like Alan and I were at a press tour and the press was going nuts about the Russian. <laughs> uh, they were asking only like, what about they the Russian? It. Why won't you tell us what happened to the Russian? But don't you think you owe audiences an explanation and closure on the Russian? They're like, no. Years later, I did an event at the uh, IFC Center where we showed Pine Barrens. And they had David Chase, Terrence Winter, and Steve Buscemi talk about the making of Pine Barrens. Wow. And at the end of them, I had T-shirts printed up, and I presented them with these shirts that said, Stop asking me about the Russian. <laughs> <laughs> we thought that we would end this episode by talking a little more about James Gandolfini, the actor, mm. and the man, the father. James Gandolfini died suddenly of a heart attack in... 2013 right mm -hmm. at age 51 sadly found by his son age 13 michael who now is starring in the many cents of newark playing his dad it's an extraordinary set of circumstances but we wanted to talk about james gandolfini's lasting legacy and busy's gonna read from David Chase's incredibly moving eulogy. She's going to try to get through it without crying, <laughs> um, but it's hard. It's so beautifully written. It's a letter to Jane Scandolfini that opens with Dear Jimmy. And about halfway through, he starts talking about an image of Jane Scandolfini on the set of The Sopranos on a really hot day that he looked over at him. They were in between takes and that he had rolled up his pants and he had like a wet handkerchief on his forehead and looking over at him and seeing this David Chase and feeling like totally quote filled with love for James Gandolfini because he hadn't seen someone do this putting the wet cloth on their forehead since seeing his own father and his Italian uncles who used to do it themselves they were laborers they worked in New Jersey under the same hot sun that they had been shooting in that day and David Chase talks about really relating to and loving James Gandolfini because he too came from a line of day laborers and James Gandolfini's father worked in concrete. So I'm going to start reading directly now. It made me so proud of our heritage to see you do that. And when I say that you are my brother, this has a lot to do with that. Italian-American, Italian worker, builder, that Jersey thing, whatever that means. The same social class. I really feel that though I'm older than you, I always felt that we were brothers. And partly based on that day, I was filled with so much love for everything that we were doing and what we were about to embark on. I also feel you're my brother talking of the things we both loved. Family, work, people, and all of their imperfections food, alcohol, talking, rage, and a desire to bring the whole structure crashing down. We amused each other. The image of my uncles and father reminded me of something that happened between us one time. Because these guys were such men, that was the point of it. Your father and these men from Italy. And you were going through a crisis of faith about yourself and acting and a lot of things, and you were very upset. And I went to meet you on the banks of the Hudson River and you told me, you know what I want to be? I want to be a man. That's all. I want to be a man. Now, this is so odd because you are such a man. You're a man in ways many males, including myself, wish they could be a man. 
The paradox about you as a man is that I always felt personally that with you, I was seeing a young boy, a boy about Michael's age right now, because you were ever boyish at about that age where humankind and life on the planet are really opening up and putting on a show, really revealing themselves in all their beautiful and horrible glory. And I saw you as a boy, as a sad boy, amazed and confused and loving and amazed by all that. And that was all in your eyes. That was why I think you are a great actor. It's because of that boy that was inside. It was a child reacting. Of course you were intelligent, but it was a child reacting and your reactions were often childish. By that, I mean they were preschool. They were pre-manners. They were pre-intellect. They were just simple emotions, straight and pure. And I think that your talent is you can take in the immensity of humankind in the universe and shine it back out to the rest of us like a huge light. And I believe that only a pure soul, like a child, can do that really well. And that was you. (laughs) We're going to hear from Matt and Alan about how they got to know James Gandolfini over the years of writing about The Sopranos. The only other thing I would say anything about is just how singular the show is because of who James Gandolfini was as a as an actor and a man. Yeah. Um, and I just kept because I, I was a longtime fan even before. I mean, he really stood out to me in true romance. He's one of those actors that always seemed like the same age to me. I can't believe that that the show ended when he was like 47 or something. And now I'm 47, but you know, that means it started when he was like 39 or 40. It's just odd. But I love that James Gandolfini's last role was enough said. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's just this sweet teddy bear who I project, you know, was sort of like more like how he really was as a person. And I'm kind of just grateful for that movie. Yeah, it's really nice because that's actually, you know, I think probably closer to who the actual guy was. He was a sweet, he was a sweetheart. I mean, this was a guy who would drive around, you know, he felt he was a working class guy, which is unusual in the entertainment industry. There's so many legacies and the sons of rich people. And, uh, he always felt a little guilty about how financially successful he was as a result of that show. And he gave away a lot of his money and he Mm -hmm. used to, when he was driving around this pre, you know before cell phones are really that common, uh, he, he would listen to the news, you know, mostly NPR and stuff. And if he heard of a charitable organization that he wanted to donate to, he had a notepad and a pen in his car and he would pull over and write down the name of the nonprofit and then find a payphone and call his accountant and say, make a donation to this charity. Aww. That's not a way that most people behave, you know, Every Friday, he paid for sushi out of his own pocket. He had a he had a sushi chef come to the set and make sushi for everybody. You know, it's a really tweet gun. And it's it's good. It's nice that you bring up enough said because um, my mother never watched The Sopranos. It was sort of like too not her speed, too violent, all right. of that. And she was once at some event that he was also at. And my mother, of course, will you know go up to anybody you know and introduce herself, and you know nothing's going to stop her. As she goes up to James Gandolfini and says, you know, you probably know my son. He writes about your show for the Star Ledger. I don't watch your show because I hear it's very violent, but I hear you're good. And I hope 
you will someday be in something less violent that I can watch. Sure. And Jim, I was not there, but I can certainly imagine the sort of shit-eating grin that Jim gave her <laughs> in that moment. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to let him know that. Um, <laughs> it's and, so then he went, and then years later, my mom's like, I saw enough said, he's so wonderful, you know? Yeah. He's everything you said that he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, I love God. Yeah, I miss that guy so much. What a what yeah. a great what a great like old man character actor he would have been. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Aaron and I like to, you know, we do these prep calls, but we almost always, if we're really passionate about the subject, we'll do like a separate Zoom, which we did for this, but we both cried during it. <laughs> just talking reading, about just talking about him, but also not reading your eulogy for him and the final Aww. couple paragraphs about you know, the humanity you see coming through Tony is really James. Yeah. Well, it was really a trip, like watching Michael Gandolfini play his dad in the movie. And, you know, I just remember I was there at press tour, uh, the summer after Michael was born and I gave Jim a present, which was the very hungry caterpillar. Oh, come on. And yeah. And he actually stood there. He actually unwrapped it. I didn't intend him to unwrap it. He stood there and unwrapped it in the lobby of the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> and he was like, oh, and he looked at it and he guess he, I guess he hadn't read it before. And he sat there and read the very hungry caterpillar in front of me. And Holy I got, I wish somebody had video of this because it was great. And you could just, it was completely silent. It was just James Gandolfini reading The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And at each time he turned the page, he would give this reaction like, oh, like he was really interested by the turn that the story had taken. Oh my and God. Got, and when he got to the end, he had this beautiful smile on his face. He was like, oh. He's unbelievable. When the caterpillar turns into a butterfly, he was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting misty. I'm getting yeah. misty. In closing, do you want to say anything about just the magic that something like this could happen? Michael Gandolfini playing his dad. I was very touched by the entire thing and particularly by, you know, Alan, you know, is probably better suited to talk about this because he did a whole profile with him. And yeah, but he told me the thing that really kind of I found haunting was him saying that he he felt like he got to understand his father better by watching the show. He wasn't allowed to watch the show right. because he was so young. In order to prepare for this role, he had to watch all 86 hours. And it's like he got to spend 86 hours with his dad yeah. and studying his gestures because he said, my dad was not like that guy. Right. Said, like the posture, you know, the way he carried himself, the way he walked, the voice, the accent. He had an accent coach to, to talk in that way. And he's like, all of that stuff was a performance. And I had to learn how to do that. And so he got to understand like what parts of Tony were his dad and which parts were a construction. Mm. And he said he felt like he was clean, felt closer to his dad at the end. And I told David Chase that and he, he said, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, <laughs> really felt that way. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, wow. And he never even occurred to him that someone could have a therapeutic reaction to having the dude. I mean, I can't think of too many other examples where a son has played a role originated by his father, except they hire somebody's son to play the older person, you know, or daughter, you know, right. in a flashback for two minutes. But this is a whole different thing. I don't know. Totally. I, I, be I believe there was a Bonanza spinoff where they did that with like all the sons of the actors. But this is, again, this is on a whole other level from that. And yeah, I, I talked to Michael a lot. He was very blunt about like, he didn't want to do this. When he was younger, he was not allowed to watch the show. And then after his dad died, it was just something he couldn't understandably do uh, and sit through. And getting the role forced him to watch it. And he ultimately wow. watched every episode three times. Like, 
once with friends because he couldn't bear to do it alone. And then he would kind of go off on it by himself and rewatch them and take more notes. And definitely like you have to imagine the, the therapeutic nature of that and just sort of working through these things and what everyone has said about how difficult the role was for Jim to play yeah. and the demons that he would bring home from him and to like watch that and see it was like, okay, now I understand why my father was doing this in this particular moment of my life. Yeah. You know, obviously he would much rather have his father with him, but having this at least is something that not many of us get when our parents are gone. Mm -hmm. You know, I miss him. I constantly miss him. And yeah. there are certain actors that I constantly miss, you know, like Natalie Wood and River Phoenix. And he's one of those people where it's just like, it's absurd that they were taken so young. It's like, what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. I feel that way. I, yeah. Just, it's never enough time, but it's never enough time in life. Very true. Mm -hmm. Well, quickly, what did you guys think of The Many Saints of Newark? I've watched it three times, and I think, I think, I'm looking at the reactions at this moment, and I'm thinking, have they learned nothing from David Chase? <laughs> I remember when season two came out, I kind of didn't like it. Mm -hmm. There were some individual episodes I liked, but in general, I thought, oh, what a disconnected, fractured, fragmented, disappointing kind of follow-up to season one. But then as it turns out, it actually was more true to what The Sopranos would become. That se Season one was the anomaly in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the end of the show, I think that almost 15 years later, I think people are starting to accept the fact that that was not only a good ending, but the correct ending for that show. That's right. And sometimes it takes people a while to get their minds around uh, what a work of art is doing. And I think Many Saints of Newark is fascinating because I think it does function on its own as a movie. I'd be very interested to see the reaction of somebody yeah. who watches the movie first and then watches the show. Like in the same way that watching the Star Wars prequels first would change your reaction to Darth Vader saying, I am your father. Yeah. You know, when you change the narrative order, it changes the meaning. But I also think more than that, Many Saints of Newark builds on this whole idea of like how much control do we really have over anything, you know, not to get too deep into the plot. But when people ask me, like, what's the movie about? I'm like, well, the, the short version is the relationship between Dickie Moltisanti, Christopher's father, and Tony in the 60s and 70s. But the longer answer is it's about uh, all the forces that shape us as people. And some of them we know about and others we never know about there could be things that happen that we were never privy to to change the course of our life and that's mm -hmm. something you know again you got to live with the not knowing you know i'm sorry to sound rabbinical here but like that's yeah i'm the jew here matt what are you doing <laughs> i don't know what's going on it's really weird psychiatry it's a racket for the jews <laughs> that's so great uh, that was that was a good show the sopranos i think it was it really was Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. 
And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash you guessed it. Tell me about your father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.